So today we are wrapping up this series we've been in on Advent. It's crazy. I say this all the time, but it's like I can't believe a sermon series is over at the end. You know, and at the beginning of it, even if it's just four weeks, it feels like, you know, four weeks is a long time out. And then you stand up here and you're like, all right, it's the week four. Um, And so that's where we are. Uh, So we've been looking at these four themes. They've been historically associated with Advent in the church. I've had a couple of people ask me, like, where do these themes come from? Uh, They're not directly mandated in the Bible or anything. These are just themes that those who have followed Jesus throughout the years and the the millennia have figured out that are helpful to us. So um, you may think, well, that's kind of weird. We shouldn't do things unless they're in the Bible. But you probably have a Bible reading plan that you follow. And the plan itself isn't mandated out in the Bible, right? It's just a tool that we use to get us more Jesus, more Bible. And so that's what Advent is. It's one of the seasons in the church calendar that centers around the life of Jesus. Uh, If you ever want to hear me get really nerdy, come ask me about it. I'll show you graphs and pictures and cycles of time and all this stuff. Uh, Really helpful, though. So Advent's one of the times as a church... Uh, that we will sort of fall into that pattern. And the the other time you'll notice is Lent and Easter. Uh, You'll see more of that kind of stuff happening. So week one, we saw the hope that Jesus brings us. That's what these four candles symbolize. We go from darkness to light. Uh, It's also no accident that we use greenery uh, in the middle of winter, right? Things are all brown and gone, but we put green, ever evergreen uh, trees and stuff around to remind us that even in the dead of winter, uh, God's love and his hope and his joy and his peace come through. And so there's life even in the middle of darkness and uh, in the middle of winter. And so for us that live in the northern hemisphere, that's really meaningful. Uh, week one, we saw the hope that Jesus brings us and how God is the source and the supplier of our hope. We saw how this hope fills us and it actually protects Uh, our hearts against the things in this season that try to rob us of that hope. In the second week, we saw a picture of God. You may remember from Zephaniah, God is singing over his people. He's dancing over us. Uh, This is kind of a weird picture for us, but it's in the scriptures, so it's there, and we have to uh, deal with it, uh, that God is so overwhelmed with the emotion of love for his people Uh, that he sings over us and he dances and he breaks out in song. Uh, And so we saw that the love that God uh, has is perfectly displayed. It's manifested in Jesus at his coming. uh, And that gives us the ability to love in the same way. Then last week, uh, Stephen uh, did a great job sharing with us uh, this command from the Apostle Paul that we should rejoice in all circumstances, right? Have joy in the middle of all circumstances. He was writing this while he is imprisoned uh, to the church at Philippi. And so uh, we saw that it's faith in Jesus that gives us the ability to rejoice in all things and share this joy, not necessarily happiness, but joy with others. And those of you who've had a little bit of life under your belt, you know that joy and happiness are not the same thing. Uh, Happiness can be taken like that, but joy is something deep and abiding. And so today... We're going to look at the final theme of Advent for us, which is peace. Uh, I I know that I've told this story before, used this illustration before. It's such a great illustration, though. Uh, On June 28th, uh, 1914, so over 100 years ago, the Archduke of Austria, uh, who, if you know your history, you know that that's Franz Ferdinand. And if you're in my age group, you know that that's a pretty great uh, band, right? Uh, But the guy, Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated on June 28th, 1914, and this led to the eventual start of what was known then as the war to end all wars, right? World War 
one began. Uh, it went down in history as one of the bloodiest wars ever. Trench warfare was uh, really the kind of thing that marked that war. Um, 18 million people were killed by the time that war was over, which is absolutely crazy. And in the middle of that, a global pandemic broke out as well. So uh, that's crazy, right? That's a crazy time to live through. Uh, now, the war itself began in July of 1914. And just a few months later, uh, history records one of the more remarkable events that takes place in Western history, maybe in all of history, but definitely in Western history. So you've got these two powers that are bitter, bitterly fighting. And there was this system of trenches on both sides that were filled with uh, the men that were engaged in battle. If you haven't seen the movie 1917, I, would, uh, I don't know if I would encourage you to see it, but I've seen it and it gives you a really good picture of this trench warfare. Also some really cool cinematography. Um, but if you haven't seen that, uh, that would give you an idea of the trench warfare we're talking about. And so in between those trenches, there is this flat ground that everybody called no man's land. Why'd they call it that? Well, because nobody survived there. You come up out of the trench and you're probably not going to survive. And so the crazy thing that happened, though, was on Christmas Eve of that year, 1914, there was a Christmas Eve truce for one night. There was peace between these two sides. Uh, the German soldiers began singing Silent Night in German. I think it's called Still Nacht in uh, the German language. The Allies also started singing Silent Night in English. The men on both sides eventually kind of came up out of the trenches. They gathered together in no man's land, and they had this moment of peace. They celebrated the birth of Christ when just a few hour, hours earlier, they're trying to kill each other. And they're going to go back to trying to kill each other uh, successfully. But this night, they exchange gifts. It's, it's crazy, right? They participate in each other's burial services. They play soccer together, Right? This sounds like a really beautiful story. It is a beautiful story. But the next day, what happened? The war resumed. And they go back to killing one another. And so when we hear the word peace, many of us think that peace just means simply a lack of conflict. And certainly, in order to get to the real kind of peace that we want to talk about, that is a prerequisite, right? If I talk about any relationship and I ask, is there peace in the relationship, the first thing that has to happen is there can't be conflict. Because if there's conflict, there can't be even just that surface level of peace. That's true. And so to some extent, lack of conflict, this is true. But it isn't what we're getting at when we talk about the peace of God. It isn't what we're getting at in some church traditions when we greet one another and we say, peace be with you. And the person responds, and also with you. We're getting at something different. We're not just saying, hey, I don't want to fight with you right now. Hey, me either. Right? It's deeper than that. So if you want to open your Bible up, Isaiah chapter 9, what we just heard read to us. If you didn't bring one, there should be a blue one, at least in some of the seats around you. Um, if you're not familiar with your Bible, the chapters are the big numbers. The verses are the little numbers that are kind of in the text. And if you're using one of those blue ones... That's not a large print blue one. Uh, page 331 is where Isaiah 9 is. I know it's one of those books that's kind of like you're going to be searching for a little bit if you're not familiar with your Bible. Um, confession time, I have to search quite a bit for Isaiah. Uh, but page 331 in those blue Bibles. We are going to do things a little different today because I'm going to be reading from a few different texts, so they are going to be on the screen. 
as well. So if that helps you out, uh, you don't want to try to jump all over the place with your Bible, um, that will work for you as well. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we heard it earlier, but I'm going to read it to you again anyway. Follow along this. I'm using the ESV translation, which is what the blue ones are, but whatever translation you have is going to work. This is what Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So one of the things that we say a lot in the church, and especially in our sort of stream of the church, is that every text is about Jesus. And that's true. Every text is about Jesus. So this text is about Jesus, but it's also not about Jesus. Right? Sometimes we can take that too far and forget the historical context of what's actually going on. So what I want to do is just make sure you understand, again, that while this is ultimately about Jesus... When Isaiah was writing this, he also had an actual person in mind. Let me explain. Isaiah is a prophet. Now, you may tend to think of a prophet as someone who tells the future, right? And certainly that does happen from time to time, but it's better to think about a prophet as someone who speaks the word of God on behalf of God to the people of God. That's what a prophet is doing. So Isaiah is a prophet, and his ministry is to speak the word of God. Now, there's a ton of people running around right now calling themselves prophets, right? If you friend request me on social media and you have prophet in your name, I'm deleting that friend request. It's not happening. Because here's why. A lot of people are running around calling themselves prophets without taking into account the rules that the prophets in the Old Testament have. Because in the Old Testament, if you make a prediction and it doesn't happen, stoning is the next step. So don't call yourself that, okay? So let me set the context of Isaiah, the real prophet's ministry. Now, before this time, the people of Israel had lived as slaves in Egypt. And then God sends plagues, and that ends with what's known as Passover. So this is a real brief history of Israel. The Israelites then, they escape Egypt through the Red Sea. They wander around the desert. I put in my notes for a while, 40 years, right? That's longer than a while. Uh, they get to the promised land. God knocks down the walls of a city called Jericho. They establish this big kingdom of Israel with 12 tribes. And then the Israelites do what we always do. We get discontent with God. We forget what he's done for us. And they start to want to be like everybody else. So they say, God, give us a king. And God tells them that's a terrible idea. But like prideful children, they're like, yeah, but we want what we want. We know better than you. Yeah, you're eternal and we're finite, but we know better than you. Give us a king. And so God acquiesces, he gives them a king, we get King Saul, we get King David, we get King Solomon, and soon after this, a civil war breaks out. Israel becomes the name of the northern kingdom, it consists of ten tribes, Judah becomes the name of the southern kingdom, and it consists of just two tribes, and so suddenly the people of Israel hate each other. These two sub-nations sort of hate each other, and each has their own king, and then the Assyrians and the Egyptians start attacking. And so Isaiah is a prophet who is talking to God's people in the nation of Judah. So he's talking to the southern kingdom, the two tribes in the south. Isaiah is a prophet for 50 years. That's incredible. And he speaks the word of God to five different kings. 
And so in our, different, in our text, he's talking to the second one of those kings, King Ahaz. Now, King Ahaz was 20 when he became king. Bad idea, right? And he ruled for 16 years, and he is a bad king. He basically said, I don't need God. I'm going to do this king thing by myself. I'm good. And Isaiah has been telling him over and over, now is the time for you to repent. You need to turn around. You need to find God. You need to trust in him. Repent. And the people repent, but this king, Ahaz, he, he refuses. He will not repent. And so Isaiah starts telling them about a future time when things are going to get better. Chapter 7, verse 14 says this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That word Emmanuel, or you might see it with an E, Emmanuel, means God with us. Okay? Then in our text, where we were in chapter 9, we start to learn about this child who's going to be born. And he gets all these titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It says that his rule and his peace will go on forever. Now again, remember the context of where Isaiah is saying this. Much of this comes true in the birth of Hezekiah. That's the king after the bad king Ahaz. As Hezekiah grows up and becomes king of Judah, Israel and the northern, the, the northern tribes, they attack the southern tribes. And then Assyria takes on Israel afterwards, and there's peace in the land for a time, for, for a little while. And so I mention this so that we understand that the people who would have originally heard this prophecy, right, which is important. It's one of the first questions you want to ask yourself. What did the author mean who wrote this, and how would the people who he wrote this to have actually heard it? Right? Because it, it doesn't really matter how you feel about it. It matters what it meant when he wrote it. And so they, those people, wouldn't have understood it in the same way that we would. Why? They would have seen it referring to Hezekiah, but, but they would have also understood that these statements are beyond Hezekiah. Right? So today, what, what do we have? We have a benefit that the people in that time did not have. We understand a mystery that they did not understand. The New Testament, if you want to think about it this way, is like a, a pair of glasses by which you can look through and see the Old Testament in its proper place. Another way to maybe think about this is, and I've used this before, when you're driving, uh, maybe you're, you're going through the mountains of Colorado, right? And you're coming up over a, a mountain, what in the distance looks to you like one mountain. When you get to the top of it, you go, oh my gosh, there's a whole mountain range behind here. And that's a little bit what the history of redemption is like. Those in the Old Testament looking forward to the promises of God could only see part of it. But those of us who have been in the New Testament, we know what Jesus is all about. We look at that and go, oh my gosh, there's a whole mountain range there. And so it's like these glasses that, that help us to see things that without we wouldn't see. So when we read the Old Testament, we have the benefit of doing so by looking back through the lens of Jesus. And that's how Jesus would have viewed the Old Testament too. After his resurrection from the grave, Jesus is walking with his disciples. Some of his disciples, he says to them, this is in Luke 24. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. I wish Jesus didn't talk to his disciples like that because I'm one of those and he could definitely call me, oh, foolish one, right? 
He says, was it not necessary? You guys know these things. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And listen to this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that includes Isaiah. He's one of the prophets. He, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, yes, ultimately, this is about Jesus. So he says texts like this Isaiah passage are ultimately about him. So while it is also not about Jesus, it's about Hezekiah, it's not going to be fulfilled ultimately with King Hezekiah, right? So for instance, the easy one, the text says this kingdom and peace will never end. Well, that's not going to happen with an earthly king. He's going to die. And Manasseh, his son, was wicked, right? His son was evil. So that good rule ended the day that Hezekiah took his last breath. So the prophecy isn't fulfilled ultimately until Jesus' life. Now, 14 times in the book of Matthew, Matthew says that Jesus is fulfilling something from the prophets. So 14 times in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew says, and this fulfills the prophets or the prophecies about Jesus. Now, that word fulfill, uh, if you, if you want to know the, the kind of etymology of what it means, it means to take something that's half full and to fill it up to the brim and overflow. So it's about completion. So what Isaiah is prophesying in our text is made partially complete in, in King Hezekiah, but ultimately is filled up and completed only in the life of Jesus. So what I want to do then for the rest of our, that was all the intro. So what I want to do now for the sermon no, I'm just kidding, is to consider how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy and particularly how he brings this sort of never-ending peace promised in these two verses. Now, we're going to speak about this in a more personal level, but there is also the level that we have to acknowledge that this means like globally as well. Like, I know I've had many conversations, especially over the last couple of years, where people want to say things like, well, that Jesus wasn't concerned about politics at all. He was definitely concerned about it, just not in the way that you think. What he didn't do was use coercion. His kingdom is just not built like that. And I want to do a series on that one day, and Isaiah is a big piece of that, right? I mean, even the prophecy we read says that his government will have no end. That means what it sounds like it means. But for today, we want to start with us. And here's a starting point. Merry Christmas, you're an enemy of God at birth, right? That's not what we want to hear, but that's what the scriptures teach us, that we are at enmity with God. And that's wild to think about. I've got babies in my house. You're telling me, Lord, that they are, but just be around them for a little bit. Ask Lily if she thinks my daughter is at enmity with God after last week. Some of you are laughing because you know what happened, right? Babies, if you've ever been around them, will use violence against you. They will. Now, it's cute because they're really not that dangerous, but they, are, they, they immediately are selfish. They want what they want. They don't care about anybody else. Why? Because our first father, Adam, when he sinned, brought brokenness into humanity, and we are now bent towards iniquity. We are bent towards being at enmity with God. Scriptures say there's no one righteous, not even one. So what we learn in the scriptures is that our natural state as humanity is to be enemies with God. And so therefore we're not at peace with God unless something happens. 
Unless God comes and makes peace where there is no peace. Unless God shows up and reconciles us to himself. Unless he takes up the mantle and does for us what we could not do for ourselves. So the only hope we have to see this peace that we want to see, not just the lack of conflict, but ultimate peace, is to be made first no longer enemies of God. That's step one, right? That's the significance of the advent of Jesus. That Jesus takes step one and brings peace where there is no peace. So ultimately, peace between sinful men, women, and children, and our creator, our holy God, right? That's what Jesus brings. But there's also, we've talked about this. I've traditionally, historically, in my ministry said there's three places that are broken. Uh, Our relationship with God, our relationship to one another, and our relationship to creation. But really, there's four because our relationship to ourself is broken as well. That's what sin does. And what Jesus coming accomplishes for his people is real and lasting peace. We see this very thing in Ephesians 2. Listen closely because I want you to take this in and to hear this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He's not the path to some other ultimate peace. He himself in his body is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing a law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, if you're wondering who the two parties are in this particular text, it's Jews and Gentiles. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to those of you who were far off, And to those who were near. To those of you who maybe live a life of licentiousness. You do what you want and you live and you know you're far away from God and you like it, right? Jesus came and said, peace to you. But he also came and preached peace to those of us who were near. Those of us who use religious activity to get away from God. Those of us who know all the right Bible answers. And therefore we don't really need God. We just want to look like we need God. He preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near, right? The angel said it, peace on earth, goodwill. So we're born at enmity with God. We're born at war with God. We're not at peace. And so he not only made peace possible, he didn't just open the door to peace, he accomplished peace. He actually did the thing that got peace, right? He accomplished it through the gift of faith. We have peace with God. That's The prophecy in our text from Isaiah today, that's the message we see in Romans 5.1, which says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have been made right with God, because of that, what? We now have peace with God through Jesus. Now, did you notice what our part in that text was? We have been justified, meaning we brought the sin to the table that needed the justification. That's what we bring to the table. And God brings the justification and God brings the peace through what Christ has done. So if if you don't have peace with God today, what this means is that that offer is on the table. It's there. You can have peace with God. You can be made no longer an enemy of God. 
And also, for those of us who do have faith in Jesus, you need to be reminded that you're right now not an enemy of God. You're no longer at at, at enmity with God. There is now no condemnation for you. Let that sink in deeply. We need to hear that every time we gather. Now, here's a reality that I, I just know is true from my experience being part of this church family, being part of any church family I've ever been a part of, and just living life. As a Christian, although we might know that we have peace with God, we are still an anxious people from time to time, aren't we? We still are wondering about things and worried about things. Galatians 5 says this. But the fruit of the Spirit, you know this text, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. So that listing of the fruit of the Spirit is really interesting. These are the characteristics that we have as a result of being justified and being in God's family. And and did you catch the third one, right? It's peace. That's something that lives in us, that dwells in us. And and here's the beautiful thing about uh, what we call sanctification, about growing in that faith, is that you can have these things, but also be growing into them. That you have peace as a fruit of the Spirit. Now, you may not be operating in that peace. You may be operating in the opposite of peace right now, but you can continue to pursue it because the threat of punishment for not following God's ways has been taken off of the table for you by faith in Jesus. And that means you're now free to pursue the fruit of the Spirit. So let me just suggest to us that we make an effort to, in our prayers, to pray for and to pursue this type of greater peace in our lives. Yes, of course, during the Advent season, but all year. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, uh, the scriptures tell us to bring to God whatever is in our lives that is creating what we would call anxiety, right? Bring whatever it is in your life that's creating worry, bring that to God. Bring that to him through prayer. Why? You were born an enemy of God, but at the coming of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection, all of which is received through faith, not by works, you have been made children of God. So now when you go to God in prayer, you speak to him like the peace-filled, loving father to you that he is. And so the result of this, of our going to God as children, we learn in Philippians 4, is the peace of God, which what? Passes understanding, surpasses Understanding. This is when someone comes to you and says, how in the world are you so at peace in the middle of this whatever is going on? You're walking in the peace that passes understanding. Some of you have experienced this. Some of you are doing it right now. This all connects together. See, this text that we read from Isaiah today speaks prophetically of Jesus, and it calls him the Prince of Peace. What this means is that Jesus offers us peace, or another way to maybe think about it is rest. He offers us peace in a world and in a culture, and really at this time of year when we feel unrest, right? The story of the Christmas Peace Treaty of 1914 is amazing, but it lasted only one night. It lasted one evening. The peace that Jesus gives with God is not temporary. It's an eternal peace, that actually will continue to grow, ever-increasing peace. How does that actually work? I don't know how you can have ever-increasing peace or ever-increasing joy, but that's the reality of the kingdom that's coming for us. 
That's the basis of all the other peace in our lives, right? We forgive others of their sins against us. Why? First John tells us because we have been forgiven first. We love because he first loved us. And we have peace with others because we dwell in peace with God. You don't have enemies who are human. You don't. The scriptures are clear. We don't have enemies that are flesh and blood. We have peace with others. Why? Because we dwell in peace with God. This again, this, we symbolize this by our time of the passing of the peace. In a little bit, when I tell you, greet one another, I want you to take a minute and look around this room and look at the confusing diversity that's in here. Right? There are people in this room together, and I'm not talking about just by socioeconomics or race or the things that are hot button topics, right? Let's just take the demographic of age and life stage. There are those of us in this room together who likely would never cross paths with one another. Why? Because we're just in different life stages. But we are friends. Why? Because the blood of Jesus has made peace between us and God and brought us together into this family that displays that peace and remembers that peace when we greet one another in, a, in just a little simple way. So let me close with just a reminder. With peace, you know this, comes rest. But often, almost always, the Christmas season is a time of unrest. And let me just tell you, it's intentional. That's intentional. It can be really difficult for us as we realize what we lack or what we at least think we lack, right, materially, relationally. And marketers know this. They appeal to our unrest. Every commercial you watch on TV, and especially this time of year, is appealing to your unrest. It's appealing to your lack of contentment, your lack of satisfaction, really the lack of a deep and abiding peace in our lives. We're too easily convinced that if we get this product or we get that subscription or we get this service, then we'll be satisfied. And you know what? You will for a little bit. You will. Some of us are going to get new phones this season, right? Well, maybe, you're, maybe your kids want one. My kids are like, can I get a phone? And I'm like, no, please, not yet. Right? Whatever the gift is, nice new pair of winter boots, whatever it is, it's going to work for a little bit. And that's why we keep going back to that. Because it does work for a little while. But it's not the ultimate peace that we want. So we have a choice as those who follow Jesus. We, we have a choice to not take that bait ultimately. To not sell our souls thinking we're going to find peace. You, you have to preach to yourself in those moments, in the coming even a few days, that even if you fail, whatever it is, that you're putting your hope in that that peace will be there. Whether, whether that be a class or a job or uh, someone in your life, you, you get to choose to remember, to preach to yourself I have peace with God through what Christ has done, and I rest in that. Even if the future doesn't go as you desire, and it probably won't, right? You are at peace with God. So we rest in the knowledge that the God of the universe, our creator, what has he done for us? He has made peace where there was no peace. He has made peace with us through the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the sitting on the throne of Jesus right now. And so we take that in, we remember that, we take a deep breath, and we exhale, and we live into the peace that Jesus has purchased for us. We, we feel the weight of the world lifted off our shoulders because your shoulders were not meant for that weight. 
and you rejoice in the peace that has come at the first advent of Jesus as we look to the second advent of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this day and thank you for this season as we wrap it up today. And as we look forward to maybe some time with family, Father, I pray that um, your love and joy and peace would be with us. That we would be those kind of people that in our families would be um, a non-anxious presence at the dinner table on Christmas night. That as we participate in the beauty of giving gifts to one another, Lord, that is such a fun tradition that, that we would ultimately not find our, our peace in that, but that we would find it in you and that we would be just a little different than the people around us so that we can offer a reason for that. Again, we thank you for this time we've spent together. We thank you for the kids that we have in our church who bring so much energy and joy to us. And uh, Father, we just ask that you bless the rest of our time together as we um, celebrate the meal together and as we go out from here. In Jesus' name, amen.